Amen. I do this evening want to give a very warm welcome once again to our visiting speaker this week, the Reverend John Greer. If you have been here already, you will know that the Lord's servant has known great help in the ministry of God's Word, and it has been a privilege for us to sit uh, under his ministry. And we trust that as he comes for this, the final meeting, that he will know the help and the fresh anointing of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Well, a sincere word of thanks to um, the Reverend Kenny for his word of welcome. And also, once again, may I thank him and the session of the church for the opportunity and the privilege that I have had to be here this week for these meetings. And it's always a, a blessing to the preacher's heart to be able to come or go to some other place and preach the Word of God. And certainly I count it a, a great honor to have been asked to be the guest preacher this week. And I trust that what we have considered night by night will lodge in your hearts and that you will have been blessed through it and continue to be blessed as you think about the Lord's Word that we have considered here in the book of Ezra. And so thank you very much, Mr. Kenny and the elders here, and all of you as a congregation for your support during this week. Now we're turning to Ezra chapter 8 tonight to uh, read some verses, Ezra chapter 8, and reading at verse 15. Ezra chapter 8, verse number 15. Let us hear the word of God. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava, and there abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests, and found there none of the sons of Levi. Then sent I for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shemaiah, and for Elnathan, and for Jarib, and for Elnathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshullam, chief man, also for Joyarib, and for Elnathan, men of understanding. And I sent them with commandment unto Ido the chief at the place Casaphia, and I told them what they should say unto Ido and to his brethren the Nethanim at the place Casaphia, that they might that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, eighteen, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, his brethren and their sons, twenty. Also the Nethanim, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were expressed by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them, that, all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. And we know that God will bless the reading of this as word to all of our hearts. And again, we will just have a word of prayer. We need the Lord's help always. On this final night, we want to know God's power and blessing. And I trust you will enter into prayer now again. And let's look to the Lord to that end. Our gracious Father in heaven, we continue in thy presence. We bow down before thee. In the name of thy Son, we thank thee for the one mediator, for that one sacrifice for sin. We have thought of these truths this week. We bless thee that there is one who 
is at God's right hand, a prince and a saviour forever, who intercedes for us, who brings us nigh to thee. And by his merit and by the value of the atonement, we come before thee now. We thank thee for the reminder in these hymns of this great subject, this doctrine of revival. And Lord, how we pray that thou wilt stir all of our hearts in these times to seek thee with all our being, uh, that we might again know a breath from heaven. O Lord, we ask that even now, over our souls, over this company, within this time that is before us, in the preaching of the word, the Lord will visit. The Spirit will come. We will know thy nearness and thy power. Lord, cleanse my heart and fill me with the Holy Ghost and come alongside tonight and grant thy grace and thy blessing as we consider the word that thou hast appointed even for this particular meeting. And so, Lord, hear and answer prayer and continue with us now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for God's eternal praise. Amen and amen. Now, the final four chapters of Ezra bring us face to face, as it were, with the man whose name is given to this book, that is Ezra. Of those four chapters, two of them, seven and eight, are devoted to describing the man himself and the details of his journey from Babylon on to Jerusalem. As I mentioned already, in looking at this book of Ezra, I mentioned this earlier in the week, it falls into two parts, chapters 1 to 6 and then chapters 7 through to 10. And it's only when you come to chapter 7 that we meet Ezra personally. His name's given to the whole book, but he doesn't appear on the page itself until we get here into chapter 7, into chapter 8, and on through to chapter 10. The final two chapters, 9 and 10, give to us something of a view of the ministry that he discharged. And that, of course, is vital information. I haven't time uh, to deal with that at all, what you have in chapters 9 and 10. I've been really giving you an overview of this book, related to Haggai, Zechariah, the two prophets who ministered alongside Ezra, Nehemiah, and those men of God so long ago. And it's impossible to cover all of the chapters of this book of Ezra in the times afforded to me this week. But I trust that what we have seen and what I want to do tonight will be a blessing to your hearts in the sense of giving you something of view of now the man himself, uh, Ezra, the man of God. And what we find, therefore, is that when you read chapters 7 and 8, you'll discover that the Lord attaches a lot of importance in these chapters to the readiness of his messengers and his servants. The Lord carefully uh, prepares and equips his instruments so that the work that he purposes them to do is accomplished in the most God-glorifying fashion possible. These two chapters can be summed up, that is seven and eight, in a threefold way, just to mention that at this stage. In chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 10, you have the life of the servant, that is, Ezra himself. Because in those 10 verses, there's a focusing in upon something of his descent. Uh, he came from the tribe of Levi and the details that are there about him, descending from Aaron and, and so forth. And you also notice something in those verses about his diligence. If you just look quickly in chapter 7, you will notice this, what it says about Ezra. And verse 10 really shows the diligence of this man. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And so there you have the life of God's servant summed up in those 10 verses. In that way, his descent and his diligence. Then from chapter, in chapter 7 from verse 11, right on through, Onwards from there, we, we find the letter of the king. Because in those verses, we have a letter that was written by Artaxerxes, another of these kings of Persia. He authorizes Ezra to go back to Jerusalem. 
He ensures that Ezra and his people will have a full supply of everything that is needed for labor and for service. And then in chapter 8, we find what you might call the log or the account of the journey itself. You see, Ezra had to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that is what chapter 8 is all about. This chapter is autobiographical. You will notice as you read through chapter 8 that Ezra is speaking here. He wrote the book, but in this chapter, he's speaking in the first person. You'll find that right down through these verses. He He goes into a lot of detail about the journey. He gives a full log or full account of all that was involved in that removal from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, when we read and we study the content of these two chapters, 7 and 8, we will be amazed at how the Lord had prepared His servant and the way forward for him in his ministry. All that God purposed for Ezra regarding all that he was to do to lead the work of the reformation that he carried out when he went to Jerusalem was smoothly and successfully accomplished. Furthermore, the reason for the prosperous fashion in which Ezra exercised his ministry and actually taking his pilgrimage to Jerusalem and then carrying out what God had given him to do is revealed to us, revealed very, very clearly. It is because of the hand of God being upon this man. Five times in Ezra 7 and 8, we read of the hand of God upon his servant. In addition to that, we find Ezra's own testimony to this experience to serve the Lord plainly. Uh, There in chapter 8 and verse number 22, it says there, I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. Notice those words, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And a simple reading of the narrative of these two chapters will show that it was the Lord's hand on this man that accounts for the great measure of prosperity and blessing that he enjoyed as he went to Jerusalem from Babylon to carry out what God would have him to do. As I note with you this detail about the hand of God being upon the Lord's servant, being the secret of his blessing and his progress, it's surely important to determine what is meant by that expression, the hand of God. Now, we use it very often, don't we? We we pray for people, we pray for the preacher, we pray for whoever it might be, that the hand of the Lord will be on that man or on our missionaries or whoever it may be. But have you ever stopped to think, what does it actually mean? You see, we know that the expression has to be metaphorical, it has to be figurative, since God is a spirit. And therefore I suggest to you that the hand of God is really a synonym for the Holy Ghost who rested upon Ezra, who gave to him the blessed success that he enjoyed in his work for the Lord, his ministry for the Lord. You see, we can prove that. We can see that in various ways. If you look at outstanding men of God in the, in the Word of God, you will find that it says that the hand of the Lord was with them, and every one of them, that exception, was a spirit-filled man. For example, Elijah. First uh, Kings 18.46 says this, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And what a man of God he was, because the hand of God was on him, the Spirit of God was on him. We know that because whenever Elisha came along, remember what his prayer was, that he'd have a double portion of the Spirit that was upon uh, his uh, predecessor Elijah. He wanted a double portion of the Holy Ghost. And so the Spirit of God was upon that man Elijah, and therefore he, he exercised his ministry in the power of the Holy Ghost. What about Ezekiel? 
We take the prophet Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 37 verse 1, it says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord. The hand of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord are brought together again in the case of Ezekiel. Another example, of course, is John the Baptist. You remember whenever John was promised to Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife, by the angel Gabriel, of course, sent by God, he told John the Baptist, or sorry, he told Zacharias that his son, John, would be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. That, of course, was unique. A very unique experience for that man of God, the forerunner of our Savior. But when you read on in Luke chapter 1 and you get to verse 66, we're informed there when uh, the child was born. We're informed there by uh, the writer, by the prophet Zechariah, uh, Zacharias himself actually. It says there that the hand of the Lord was with him. So he's filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. The hand of the Lord was with him. What about those men in Acts 11? We're told there that they caused many to turn to the Lord in conversion through their ministry. And yet, it was because of the Spirit of God that rested upon them. That's enough for us to see what is meant by the hand of God. And the light of all these scriptural, this scriptural proof... I can assert tonight, I can say without any hesitation, that Ezra was a man who had the Holy Ghost upon him as he labored for God. He was a Spirit-filled man. And therefore, we may truly say that that was the secret of his blessing and his power as he served his God in his day and in his generation. Here, therefore, there is the proof that the only way in which the work of God is going to go forward, is through the Spirit of God, the hand of God, being upon the people of God, upon every rank and file of the people of God, as they go on with God in their service for the Master. That's what I want to look at tonight. The title of this message, The Hand of God Upon the Man of God. Dear brother or sister, take that to heart tonight. Think about it deeply and carefully and prayerfully and tell yourself that for you to live, for you to serve, for you to be a witness for God in your day and time, you need the hand of God in your life. You need the Spirit of God to fill you and to take you and use you. I want to look, first of all, there are two main points tonight. First of all, the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra in answer to prayer. Look at verse 22 again. And notice what it says there toward the end of the verse. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And so the Lord's hand rested upon Ezra in answer to prayer. His words tell us that the enjoyment and the experience of this blessing is in response to earnest prayer. The hand of our God is upon all them that seek him. Notice the context all those words there in verse 22. Before commencing their journey from Babylon, when Artaxerxes gave the go-ahead, you, you find in verse 22 that Ezra and his colleagues had testified before Artaxerxes that all those who would seek the Lord would have his hand upon them, God's Spirit with them. And therefore, when they faced their journey and began to realize the dangers that would be faced, Ezra and his company were ashamed to ask for an escort from the king. Just look at verse 22. I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And what he was really saying was, We have prayed about this. The hand of God is on us. We don't need an escort on the way to Jerusalem. And then they discovered that the enemies were lying in wait for them. But they were ashamed at that stage to ask the king for an escort because they had said, already said, we don't need one. You see how your mouth can get you into trouble at times. And so 
they just were embarrassed. They were ashamed. They couldn't go back and say, we need an escort now because we suddenly discovered that their enemies in the way. But we will find tonight that the hand of God was with them and the hand of God took care of the enemies too. But the point is that that's the context of what he says here, the hand of God is upon all them that for good that seek him. And then verse 23 records this. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Those words are very important. He had made the statement. He had put his, he had put his whole ministry on the line. When he had said, we don't need an escort. The hand of God's on those who seek him. But it seems they hadn't prayed yet. And therefore, verse 23 goes on to tell us that they got down to prayer. And they prayed and they fasted before God for this. That is that they would have the hand of the Lord upon them in their labor, in their journey, in all the different permutations that were going to come upon them as they made their way back to Jerusalem. And therefore, isn't it true that the hand of God comes upon the believer, upon the church of Jesus Christ, in answer to prayer? That is not something new that I have just stated. But it's something that we need to do. One of the brethren here tonight, I'm not sure where he's seated, but anyhow, he said to me the other night, going out the door when I've been preaching along the lines of the Spirit of God and so forth, in one of the earlier messages, he made a reference to the Holy Spirit when upon the work of God or whatever his exact words were, I can't remember now, but he said we need to pray for it. And so that's what we're seeing now. We need to pray for this, men and women. Christ himself was anointed by the Spirit in answer to prayer. You, you see that in Luke chapter 3, in verses 21 and 22. There you have the record of the beginning of the public ministry of the servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It had been predicted that he would be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit would be upon him, that the Spirit would anoint him. Isaiah 11 verse 2 refers to Christ the branch. And it says there, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's in Isaiah 42 as well, where God says, Behold my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. And he goes on to say, I have put my spirit upon him. Or, or Isaiah 62 verse 1, the Messiah himself says predictively, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And so it was promised, it was predicted, it was clearly revealed that Christ would have the Holy Ghost upon him. But he prayed for it. I want you to look at the Gospel of Luke and that third chapter and those words, those verses I've mentioned. Luke 3, verse 21 and verse 22. And notice what happens here. It says, And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The actual experience of the anointing of the Lord Jesus took place as he prayed. It's vital to note that. Christ himself prayed for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one who in his deity has all power. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's the one who made all things at the very beginning. He's the one who upholds all things in his deity. But when he came to his earthly ministry, he prays for the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And that's remarkable. And that should strike our hearts tonight because since Jesus Christ found it necessary to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill him and anoint him. 
How much more do you and I need to cry to God for the anointing of the Spirit and to do so incessantly? You know, the Lord's ministry summarized for us in Acts 10, verse 38. And remember that the infilling of the Spirit upon Jesus Christ was for His earthly ministry. He exercised that ministry, every miracle, every word He spoke, all that He performed. It was all done by the power of the Holy Ghost. So Acts 10, verse 38 sums it all up. It was a tremendous statement. It says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Listen, for God was with him. And really that's another synonym for that other, that other phrase, the hand of God was upon so and so. It tells us here that Christ was anointed with the Spirit. He went about doing good. He defeated the devil. He healed the sick. Why? because he exercised his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Do you know, brethren and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ died through the offering of himself by the eternal Spirit? There on the cross, you find this in Hebrews 9, 14, and it says there, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot, unto God. And so we go and look at our Savior. We see Him in the days of His flesh. We watch Him as He preaches. We view Him as He performs His miracles. We listen to Him as He deals with the powers of hell. We view Him as He conquers the Pharisees and all the religious leaders. And they could not withstand His power or His Spirit because the hand of God was with Him in answer to his cries. You see, Christ prayed for the hand of God, the Spirit of God, on the basis of the fact that he had come to accomplish redemption. That's a very vital feature of this matter of praying for the Holy Spirit. When we ask the Lord for the Spirit, and we should, day by day, there must be a ground upon which we make that petition. Do we deserve the Holy Ghost? No, we don't. We don't deserve any spiritual blessing. And we certainly don't deserve the Spirit's help or power in and of ourselves. So what is the ground for God giving us the Holy Spirit? It is this, my dear friend. The Holy Spirit is given to the saints on the ground of the redemptive work of Christ. Christ has purchased the Spirit for His church. In that sense of all that the Spirit does in our lives, from our regeneration through into our sanctification, and also in our service for God, the Holy Ghost has been bought for us by the precious blood of the Lamb. And therefore we are to come before the throne of grace, and this is the point, with confidence that what has been bought for us by the blood of the Lamb cannot be withheld from us. Look at the disciples in Acts 1. View them as they go to the upper room in Acts 1. They go there and they pray for ten solid days and at Pentecost the Spirit comes. But what had they seen that led them to that, to that upper room? Because prior to that, they were a bunch of defeated, cowardly men. But something has got a hold of their hearts. And I'll tell you what it was. They saw a number of tremendous truths as they spent time with the Lord. You're told in Acts chapter 1 that he appeared to them, he ministered to them after his passion. That's the cross work where he had died. He gave them the promise of the Holy Ghost. Then they saw the Lord ascend up. So they have seen him alive after his suffering and his death. He has made atonement for their sins. 
He has risen from the dead as a sign and the seal that the atonement has been accepted by the Father. He ascends up. They saw him go up and they watched him until he went out of sight and then they went to the upper room and they prayed the Holy Ghost down for themselves. They prayed on the basis of the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior. And the Spirit came. And that's how you and I are to pray. The ministry of Christ's church, in terms of service and labor, whatever it might be, is inseparably connected with the atonement, with the finished work. I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And notice here what it says about Paul, or actually Paul says himself as he writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 5, he says this, For there is one mediator between God, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so in verse 5 you've got the Lord's person. He is the one mediator between God and men. We saw this the other night, he's the God-man. In verse 6, you've got the work of Christ. He gave himself a ransom to be test- for all to be testified in due time. Now look at verse 7. Whereunto. And the word whereunto is the vital word. It means in connection with which. I am ordained a preacher. Notice how Paul associates his preaching ministry with the atonement. He says, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher. Paul is saying many things there. He's saying, I would have no message to preach but for the atonement, the ransom paid by Christ. And of course, he's alive forevermore. He's also saying, by the same token, I would have no power to minister except for the fact of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the Holy Spirit comes upon his servants in answer to prayer. Therefore, the apostles, not only Christ, had the Holy Spirit in answer to prayer, but the apostles themselves had the Holy Spirit come upon them in answer to prayer. Now, those apostles were unique men, They had special gifts. They had unique gifts, and and that, of course, belonged only to that age. Those gifts are no longer in vogue. They might have said to themselves, we can do without a fresh anointing of the Holy Ghost because we have all these gifts that the Lord has given to us, but they didn't do that. They waited, and they prayed, and they called on God to give them the Spirit, that the hand of God would be with them. I could take you again to many verses, but time does not permit that. I'll take you to one passage, and that's Acts 4. Oh, we've already mentioned Acts 1, Acts 2, what happened there at Pentecost. But go to Acts chapter 4, because what you find in Acts 4 is that the same men who were filled with the Spirit in chapter 2 are now filled again in chapter 4. Acts 4, what's the context here? The context is of the Sanhedrin forbidding them to preach the gospel ever again. That's what they're told. That's what the enemies of the gospel say to them. Don't ever preach in this man's name again. And what was their answer? Look at verse 20. Sorry, verse 19. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, that was quite a statement. They were simply saying, they were clearly saying, we're not going to stop preaching. That wasn't bluster. That wasn't hot air. Very easy to say that. But they realized we need a fresh anointing. So what did they do? Go to verse 24 or 23. Being let go, that's Peter and John. Being let go, they went to their own company, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they, that's the rest of the apostles, when they heard that, 
They lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and so they start to pray. And what a prayer this is. As it starts there in verse 24 and goes right down through to 28, 29, it comes to a climax there. And I want you to see the climax to their prayer. Verse 29, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings. You know, they were wise men. They were surrounded by religious leaders who hated them because they hated Christ. This is just a little band of men, very, very much outnumbered, under threat, and they go to pray. And notice how they pray. Now, Lord, have a look. That's what it means. Behold their threatenings. They didn't start marching about and saying, where the men will defeat these boys. No. They said, Lord, you have a look at them. Notice what they're doing. And what they're really saying is, Lord, they're threatening you. And they're threatening your gospel. Lord, behold them. Read on with me in verse 29. Behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And remember that the word boldness in the New Testament doesn't mean brazenness. It doesn't mean forwardness. It means confidence. The word for boldness literally means saying all. It signifies a freedom of utterance that is based on the confidence of having God with one or a company. And so they say, Grant unto thy servants with all boldness that may speak thy word. Listen now, by stretching forth thine hand. Here's the hand of God again. They're praying for the hand of God. And what happens? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They got the hand of God again. Another time, a fresh infusion of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the Word of God with boldness. And therefore, the Spirit came upon these men as they, as they got before the Lord and they prayed. Now I think the message is very clear. The hand of God, the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God as they pray. He came in Christ. He came in the apostles. And there are many other examples that could be drawn from the Scriptures along these lines. But if you go back to Ezra, please, and just look there in Ezra uh, chapter 8 again. Look with me at where our text lies, essentially. The hand of God is upon all them for good that seek Him. And then verse 23 again, So we fasted and prayed. We fasted and prayed or, and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. What do you notice there? We notice the earnestness of the praying in which they engaged. They fasted and prayed. They realized they were in a serious situation. This journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, that's what this is all about. They haven't even left Babylon yet, hardly. But before they go, they get down to fast and pray. They realize the seriousness of the situation. I wonder sometimes, do you and I really, want, really recognize the seriousness of our days? I don't believe that it has really hit us yet how serious our times are, how threatening they are, how dangerous they are for our children and our young people, for the work of God, for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why is it that we seem to be so reticent about really making an effort to get to 
the stated prayer meetings of the church. Never mind special seasons of prayer. And we've got to face this. This is the situation that we are in. And I'm not talking here about other denominations. I'm talking about our own denomination. Serious times upon our land. We're governed by evil men. Legislating wickedness. And it seems that we don't really... We don't really discern the seriousness of it. Because the crying to God and the waiting of God and sacrificing to do it doesn't seem to pervade our minds at all or fill our hearts or drive us to our knees. And I don't say that in a scolding fashion. I'm just simply telling you, brethren and sisters, as far as I can see, We have a long way to go. And we need to be like Ezra and his men, his company, because the Holy Spirit came upon them. The hand of God fell on them as they prayed, but they prayed with great earnestness. And they sought the face of God. You know what it is that will draw us or drive us to earnest seeking after God? It's an awareness of our own weakness. That's when we will really pray. If you turn to Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, look with me at the Lord's teaching there in Luke 11 and see how it develops. In verse number 1 of that chapter, it says that he was praying in a certain place when he ceased One of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So at least these disciples had caught uh, an understanding of what it was to pray. They, They listened to the Lord pray. That must have been a wonderful experience, to listen to Jesus Christ pray. But they caught the fire in their own souls. And then you have what was often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's not the Lord's Prayer uh, it's really a prayer for the disciples, a pattern for prayer, uh, our Father which art in heaven and so on. But then farther down, the Lord tells a little parable about the friend at midnight in verse 5. And you know the parable, I'm sure most of you have read this and heard it preached many and many a time about uh, someone going to the friend at midnight and saying unto him, friend me, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing except before him. Notice those words in verse 6, a friend of mine in his journey. Literally those three words in his journey read this way, a friend of mine out of his way. It means that the friend who had come the way of the other man was lost. And he arrives at midnight, or it's all at midnight, and the first man has nothing to give him. That's his lament, that's his cry. I have nothing to set before him. And so what does he do? He keeps on pestering the other man until he gets what he needs. He will not give up. And what does the Lord go on to do? He goes right down through these verses teaching on prayer until you get to verse number 13. And it says there, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Again, we're brought to this matter of obtaining the Spirit of God in terms of His coming upon us. And there it is once more. You see, my friend, that's the answer. And we're driven to see that, and we're driven to pray for this, when we really see we have nothing. We have nothing. We have no power. We have no wisdom. We have nothing to meet the needs of a lost world, to meet the needs of corrupt humanity all around us. We have nothing. We need the Holy Spirit of God. If you go down quickly to verse 20, 
And this is like a sequel to the whole passage here in Luke 11. And notice what the Lord says there. If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the Lord was casting out devils after this uh, that you have in the first part of the chapter. And it was said by his accusers that he was doing it through the power of the devil himself. And the Lord responds to all that. And what he's saying is in verse number 20, it's with the finger of God that I am casting out devils. My friend, let me tell you, the finger of God is the Spirit of God, just like the hand of God. But he's referred to by Christ as the finger of God, just to bring home to us that all we need from the Lord is a touch. That's all we need. And that will make all the difference. A touch from the Lord will defeat the devil. A touch from the Lord will stop the devil in its tracks. You know, there's another place in the Bible where you read of the finger of God. If I were doing a Bible quiz, I wonder who would know. There's another place in the Bible where you read of the finger of God. It's in the book of Exodus. Whenever the plagues were taking place, and in Exodus 8, 18 and 19, let me just read the verses because they are powerful verses. It's when the magicians are withstanding Moses. Exodus 8, 18, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Do you notice that? The enemy recognized that Moses had a power that they didn't have. This is the finger of God. And you know, there's a sequel to all that. In 2 Timothy 3, where Paul writes to Timothy about the last days. If you want to turn to it, look at it. I'm not going to get finished the message tonight, so that's fine. Um, we'll just finish up soon here. I'm still on the first point. But anyway, turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last, last days perilous times shall come. The last days is a reference to the entire period from the first coming of the Lord to the second coming of the Lord. But we've been told here that during all that scope of time or that length of time, there will be perilous times. The word times there, perilous times, means seasons. And so there's a multiplicity of them. And Paul is telling Timothy, during that whole period, there will come all these perilous seasons, one after the other. And as you read the chapter carefully, you find that the next one is worse than the one before. That's the way the chapter is written. Until we think about the very end before the Lord comes back. And that will be the darkest day ever. That's what the chapter is showing us. So that's the setting. And if you look with me here in this chapter, at verse number 8, here is what I want you to see. Connecting it back to Exodus. Now as Jannes and Jambres... You see, in Exodus, no magicians are named. None of the Egyptian magicians are named. But here are two of them named in 2 Timothy 3. And they must have been, as it were, chief magicians, leaders. As Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. That is, the men of whom he writes and the wickedness of them in the last days. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. That means they are men who cannot be saved. They're reprobates. But look at verse 9. But they shall proceed no further. You see, the magicians in Egypt, they aped some of the plagues or the miracles that Moses performed, but it came to a point where God stopped them and they could proceed no further. And they said, this is the finger of God. The finger of God has stopped us from going any farther. And that's exactly what Paul, I believe, by inference is telling us here. Evil men will go so far and then God will stop them. 
And sometimes you and I think, boy, they've gone an awful long way and nobody has stopped them yet. My friend, do not mistake this. The Lord will eventually stop them. It may not be and taking the end times and the final onslaught, it may not be until the Savior appears. But that will happen. And then evil men will be stopped forever. And never again will they speak a word against the Son of God. Oh, they'll blaspheme and curse him as they writhe in the agonies of hell but they will not be here among the saints. You know, we're going to be living in the new earth and the new heaven. That's our abode for eternity. The meek shall inherit the earth. So that's going to be part of our abode, the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no, no evil man, no wicked man, no corruption, no sin, nothing like that. But you see, in our day and time, we need the Holy Spirit to come. We need the finger of God upon us as we serve the Lord, the Holy Ghost coming upon the church. Brethren and sisters, pray with all your heart for the God of heaven to move in Hillsborough among your people. Set yourselves to pray that the Lord will come afresh by His Spirit. What I was going to show you, I'll just mention it quickly, in the final analysis of things, what I was going to say tonight, and the second main point is that, as the whole narrative shows in these two chapters, as a result of the hand of the Lord in Ezra, wonderful things took place. There was divine supply. Just note these references with me. You can mark them in your Bible and that's all we need to see. Uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Ezra went up from Babylon. He's already scribing the law of Moses, which the Lord of God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. God met every need. Then there was divine strength as well as divine supply. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. It says there, And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. There is divine strength. Ezra got that strength because he had none of his own. He obtained power, strength from the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Then there were divine servants. Chapter 8, verse 18. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, you see, in the previous verses you read that they suddenly discovered they were, they were short of men. And they prayed about it and they sought the Lord and so on. If you look at the end of verse 17, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. Oh, my dear friend, we always need ministers for the house of God. And then it goes on to say, but the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. But when you read this carefully, there was more than one brought along. Tomorrow our presbytery is meeting to pray for our Bible college that the Lord will send us young men and young ladies. Men for the ministry, ladies for the missionary work. And here's the very same kind of thing. But notice it. The Lord gave them servants, laborers, as His hand was upon them. And then one closing little detail. There was divine supply and divine strength and divine servants. There was divine security. Chapter 8, 31. It says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go on to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. And as such as lay in wait by the way. Oh, you see, as I said earlier in this message, they had said to the king, we don't need an escort. We'll manage. 
Then they realized it just wasn't as easy as that. And so they prayed. And the hand of God came down again. And the hand of God dealt with their enemies. Those who were, as it says there in verse 31, uh, delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. You know, whenever I read that about the hand of the enemy, I thought of Psalm 31. I say this just as I come to a close now. Psalm 31, verse number 5. You know what it says in that verse? Into thine hand I commit my spirit. It says this as well. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. How can we commit ourselves into God's hand on the basis of redemption? What the verse is really saying is, as far as the child of God is concerned, I know those opening words were used by Christ in the cross, but the whole verse is for the believer. The believer praying, Lord, I need thy hand. I commit myself into your hand. But then the added words, you've redeemed me. You see, when you are redeemed, everything about you is in God's hand. And therefore, every day you can make that your prayer. Lord, because you have redeemed me, I want thy hand on me. I want to be in your hand. I want to be carried. I want to be led. I want to be protected. I now commit my Spirit into thy hand. Verse 15 of Psalm 31 says this, My times are in thy hand. It's the basis for that great old hymn. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. And so what it means is when you're in God's hand, then all your times are in God's hand. Everything about you, with regard to your earthly life, the years you'll be here, whatever length it may be, it's all in God's hands. We could not be in safer hands, could we? We could not have a more mighty hand upon us than the hand of God, the Spirit of God. And I trust that tonight the Lord will encourage you and that you and I, we will pray much for what we need as we have noted these thoughts from this marvelous passage. May God bless his word to each one of you. Mr. Kenny will come please and close this meeting. Thank you. We're going to come to another hymn as we bring our service to a close tonight at 649. And we want to thank the Reverend Greer most sincerely tonight for this week of ministry meetings and for that word to each of our hearts. And may the Lord bless that word to every heart tonight. We've been singing in this week of meetings uh, hymns that have the theme of revival. And here, 649, over the hilltops, down from the skies, coming from glory, lift up your eyes while we are watching and while we pray, a mighty revival is sweeping this way. We'll stand as we sing this hymn. Why we? 
bow together in a closing word of prayer. As we still our hearts before the Lord, we have much to be grateful for. The Lord has been with us this week. Help has been given to the Lord's servant in the exposition of the word. And I believe the Lord has challenged our hearts. And even in the closing moments and the stillness here at the end of this meeting, you lift your heart afresh to the Lord. You ask the Lord to come upon you personally. In the words of this hymn, tarry for power. This is our need. Patiently labor, sowing the seed. Soon comes the harvest, glorious day. A mighty revival is sweeping this way. Oh, that we could know that time of visitation, that time of reviving personally, even within our own hearts. Maybe there's one here tonight, you've attended the meeting and you're not saved. You could lift your heart to the Lord tonight. You could call upon him even now. And the promise is for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May the Lord put his seal of approval upon this week of ministry meetings. Our gracious God and our loving Father, we do thank thee afresh tonight for thy precious word. And we do confess, O God, that we need thy hand to be upon us. And I would pray, O God, tonight personally, put thy hand upon me, O God, and grant to me that infilling of thy spirit. And move upon us, O God, we pray, Put thy hand upon our office bearers here in Hillsborough. Touch our hearts, O God. Grant our Father that our Sabbath school teachers, our children's workers, our youth workers, our members, O God, here in Hillsborough, might know the hand of God afresh upon them, and that, O Father, thou wouldst pour out that spirit of prayer and give us grace to seek thee, and, O oh, Father, that this week of meetings would not only have been challenging to our hearts, but, O, oh, that it might be changing. And, O oh, Lord, that our prayer times would be different. And, O oh, Father, in our service for Thee, we'll know the cutting edge of God the Holy Spirit. 
thou wouldst drive back the forces of hell and evil. And, O Lord, here we pray for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ and for precious souls to be the saved of the Lord. And even tonight we thank thee that the hand of the Lord is not shortened, that it cannot save. And, O Lord, move, we pray, within hearts, and move, O God, within homes and within family circles, and bring the wandering ones to the Saviour. Do bless our brother tonight. We do thank thee for his ministry, for his labor of love for thee, and do encourage him and strengthen his hand in the Lord, and grant our Father that he would know uh, many souls to his ministry. And, O Father, thou wouldst continue thy good and thy gracious hand upon them. Hear our prayer, O God, tonight, and we return thee thanks for the food, for the good things that have been provided. Blessed, O God, to our bodily use, then take us each one to our homes in safety, and may we know thy hand to be upon us for good. We commit our way to thee in the Saviour's great name. Amen.